I've been in cybersecurity for 20 plus years, watched the evolution of it. Some of the customers that we've had have been the government, intelligence agencies, large corporations. We've seen the growth of what's known as the dark web and all the different business models that are involved in it. And what I'd like to do is uh, turn it over to Chen Sei to give us kind of an overview of the marketplace, the motivations, and then what we'll do is open it up to the panel. We have a series of questions, but I'd like to keep it free form. I'll give you mine. Technology always fails you. <laughs> um, so I, uh, in my previous work, I uh, was an analyst with Forrester for a long time. So we looked at a lot of the market in terms of technology as well as uh, uh, the anti-technology, if you will, or the dark web. Um, so we saw it grow from a you know, sort of ad hoc business into a multi-billion dollar marketplace. Um, and now you see the whole value chain is actually very well formed. It's, a, it's a, uh, an economy that is very, very interesting if you follow the chain of transactions. Uh, you've got folks who are producers, producers of malware. They don't necessarily attack anyone, um, not, not every single one of them, but they produce malware for sale. It's a software business. They have software updates, they have support, um, but you don't necessarily know who they are. So they always come with pseudonyms and they produce software for sale for the guys who are actually attacking businesses. So you've got producers, you've got attackers, um, and the attackers are the software consumers, right? So they don't actually have to understand now these days how to attack folks. They just buy the software product and let it go. And, and then you've got um, other folks in this value chain who are bot army operators, right? They don't necessarily own the attacker software. They don't attack people. What they do is they sell resources. Um, they operate a huge bot army. Maybe some of your machines is part of their uh, arsenal. They make money on resources. So you've got these different folks in the value chain. And then you've got folks that uh, the, the attackers, in the end, they sell data, they sell information, and that's another part of this marketplace. So you've got these different fractions in the market, and they all operate in sort of closed room, um, conversation rooms, chat rooms, and um, anonymity uh, tools and, and circles. If you are part of that dark web, you understand this is about as active an economy as anything that is in the legal realm. So that's just a, a 50 second summary. So um, is it a good business model? Is it a good recurring revenue model for? <laughs> recurring so there's, there's a criminal side and there's a legal side. Uh, if you're a good hacker and you don't mind being on the other side of the law, you can make a lot of money. Um, a, somebody I know went from the white hat to the black hat and uh, Within the first year he did it, he bought a Ferrari. And he said, I could never do this working for Symantec or McAfee. So there you go. By the way, one other question, and we'll move it on to the, to the rest of the panel. Um, is what they're doing illegal? In yeah. other words, is the dark web illegal? What does the term legal and illegal mean? And is the revenue clean or is the revenue dirty? That's definitely illegal. It's uh... Where is it illegal and where is it legal? Depending on who's doing it. 
Well, um, you know, if it's if it's your credit card, and uh, you know, you're, if, if you look at how much a fresh credit card is worth in the marketplace today, it's thirty-five cents, right? So if you steal ten million of them and sell them, um, that's quite a bit of money, right? With that amount of money, this is never going away, right? So it's illegal from the uh, uh, the finance uh, credit card company's perspective because. Yeah, you're, you're given the right to use that credit card, but it's being used by another individual. So it's definitely illegal. Here, but if, it, if you're in, let's say, Romania, and they're stealing credit cards, or you're in Cuba, or you're in North Korea, is it illegal to steal American credit cards <laughs> and use them in North Korea? Well, I, you know, I don't know. Should we drop bombs I, on them? It's like, I don't know. Well, I, mean, yeah, I, I, well, I think it's first, first things first, Phil. I think we should just build a big, beautiful wall between the dark <laughs> and uh, And who's going to pay the, for that? <laughs> you are, you are, of course. I want you to know I'm from yeah. San Diego, and we, we'll take the money there, if you guys want to build a wall. There's a lot of bad hombres in the dark now. Hombres. <laughs> uh, no, a little political humor. But, uh, no, you, you know what, I think it's, it's interesting, too, because it's important to understand the, the dark net was started by the DOD. And back in 2000, well, actually 1990s, and uh, it was originally created to anonymize behavior back and forth. And originally for countries that were limited by freedom of speech, couldn't communicate, maybe certain areas. So it, it was one of these things that was designed for anonymity, and it quickly became the area of nefarious people because you can be anonymous. And... The thing that's interesting is that I, I don't know if necessarily there's a lot of, there is a lot of illegal activity that happens, but the thing that's important to realize is that there, there is a ton of ethical questions that happen there, right? And when you look at it from re recurring revenue, and yeah, there's a lot of illegal stuff that happens. And if you're playing in the gray areas of the law, um, if you're looking to buy and sell security exploits to the government, uh, some of the newer things you're starting to see on there is insider trading. I mean, it's a great place for people to do insider trading that are willing to, you know, put their stuff out there against companies. So, But it's also a very great area of business, right? As we were talking about in our prep session that... Uh, you know, some guy is selling malware, and, and if you wanted to buy malware to attack some websites. How do you know the guy who's selling malware is not a government agent? Could be a government agent. Uh, could be a government agent that's selling legitimate malware with a backdoor embedded in it. You don't know. You just have to take that leap of faith in the dark web. It's, it's a very, very interesting marketplace. Well, so, so one of the questions for everybody here who has a business and is investing into businesses, they have a lot of PII. There is evolution in PII handling in things like GDPR. And the recent um, interviews with uh, Zuckerberg in Facebook. So we all have a lot of PII. And this PII, can people reasonably keep it safe? Or is it being extracted quietly? And what are the implications for the members of the audience in terms of the companies that they have in terms of their responsibility, minimization of loss? And should they be concerned? And what sort of things could they take away from the session that would help them reduce their costs or at least quantify them and limit them? 
Yeah, I, I think the responsibility um, resides on those people who choose to keep the PII. As the custodian of personal identifiable information, um, you know, you have certain responsibilities, uh, otherwise choose not to keep it, right? Uh, if you don't want to comply with uh, the European Union's uh, uh, GDPR regulation, don't maintain any business in Europe. Don't keep any information about European citizens. It's, um, you know, it's all a matter of what, you, what, and choose, uh, what you choose to do uh, within your business. So. Um, totally agree. Choosing to keep data or not is a increasingly a critical decision. I know a lot of marketing people here, and I've worked with marketing and, and for marketing uh, in the past, and I know marketing folks always say, we need the data because we don't know when we're going to need it. We might send a newsletter next week. Uh, the thing is, there's, there's a concept that I always talk about. It's called data obesity. If you have too much data, you become data obese. And you know what? With the amount of data comes, the increasing amount of data comes increasing risk. So if you, the mo one of the most effective thing to do is if you don't need the data, get rid of it. Eliminate it from your infrastructure, from your records as much as you can because that's just going to become a ticking time bomb. Yeah, we, we have this notion at KPMG that uh, uh, <laughs> uh, we categorize uh, some data as uh, redundant, obsolete, and trivial, or ROT, what we call ROT, right? The challenge is, is that if there's this emotional tie that people have that they don't want to delete their data, right? They can't, they can't pull this Frankenstein switch. And as Dr. Wang points out, the more data you have, the higher risk you uh, you present to your company and, and, you know, could potentially be misinterpreted by a opposing counsel in a legal matter. So it could really be the matter of uh, life or death when it comes to your financial uh, existence. Yeah, I would, I would say, yeah, don't hoard your data if you don't need to. I mean, the, the last thing you want is your customer PII data ending up on the dark net because then you're in a PR nightmare. And I think that's the biggest challenge that a lot of people have that they're dealing with is then all of a sudden you have your customer information or it could even be source code in a lot of cases that uh, will end up there and it's for sale or for use. And uh, yeah, you shouldn't, you shouldn't keep it unless you have to. You know, but to come to, back to Phil's original question, you know, can you protect it? And yeah, certain companies do, right? It's not easy, right? It's a, it's a matter of a risk appetite, right? Uh, how much money are you willing to spend to protect this data you're choosing to be the custodian of, right? And, uh, you know, what you're willing to risk, uh, you know, from a, a, a brand perspective, right? I always ask the question, how, how many people have uh, been hacked here but don't know it? Right? <laughs> so, so you laugh, right? But... You know, there's two kinds of customers, those that have been hacked that do know it and those that have been hacked that don't, right? Now, whether you've been hacked and they've uh, pulled valuable information, you know, those are different stories, right? So, Let me propose the next question, which is, if you're an investor and you're uh, building a startup, at what point should you consider talking to the principals about security being principle to the design of the business and is it something that you evaluate in the purchase of a business if you're doing rounds in the business because 
I would expect this would impair your investment. And what exactly are you impairing? What exactly might happen? So I guess these are really two questions. I think the first question is, at what point as an investor should you begin to ask the question of your business? And what kind of questions should you ask of the principles of these businesses that you're investing in? Um, so I have a fund, a new fund, uh, Rain Capital. I invest in security companies. So obviously to me, it's important to know that the companies I invest in uh, keeps their data secure and keeps their software secure. Um, but on a more broader angle, if you're an investor of um, consumer tech companies, data is of critical importance, right? And now I'm hearing actually more and more boards now are interested in understanding how the company is um, operating on securing data, right? So um, I've got previously my clients are now uh, doing M&A and, and, and large company side. They will actually go and purchase dark web intelligence service prior to a transaction. They will understand, they will want to understand if the company that I'm, I'm trying to purchase, if their customer data or their data has been breached, has been available for sale on the dark web. If it is, it'll either, they'll pull the deal or will uh, reduce the price significantly, just as what happened with Yahoo, we all know that, right? So, and this is actually now happening with smaller and smaller companies. Yeah, and I, you know, I think your point, uh, when do you start paying attention? You know. Uh, we have a list of the top five mistakes that uh, our clients make when it comes to cybersecurity. And one of those, right, is this notion that uh, security is the security group's problem. It's a cultural issue, right? Security is everyone's responsibility, right? And that has to be understood from the ground up in order that everyone takes uh, the necessary roles to protect the, the data you're choosing to be custodians of. Security used to be a large company business, right? And yeah. then even the, uh, only the large ones will buy semantic and whatnot. Now it's everybody's business. Unfortunately, that is the reality. Yeah. Are there any third parties that an investor can go to or a company can go to that would quantify and give them a temperature gauge and would tell them how good they are and what kind of risks they're running and give them a score or an estimate? So if I was an investor, who could I send in, like for example, for source code review, you'd use Black Duck, or you know, for uh, financial governance, you might send in you know, RSM or Grant Thornton or somebody else to look at that. Who comes in and looks at the security and measures the risk of the existing company as well as for further investments? Yeah, um, well, so security assessments are, are commonplace. Uh, there's a number of uh, scales in the in the marketplace that are kind of considered leading practices. Uh, ISO's a standard, it's a standard, uh, COVID's a standard, right? So depending on what you're, what you're doing, you can kind of be measured against these standards from uh, zero to five. Uh, I, I was with one client, uh, they, they said, whatever you do, don't come in and do an assessment. We've had three of them done, we want to get from here to there, so don't do an assessment. So when we got in there, um, one of their areas was governance, right? Whether or not they had any policies and they were assessed at like a two and it's like, wait a minute, you guys have no policies, you can't be a two. Um, you know, you need to have policies to get started to at least be a one, right? 
So you have to kind of be careful of the comfort you have with an assessment that, oh, you know, I'm in, I'm in a good place. But you also have to understand what uh, we at KPMG call your crown jewels are. What are those single most important digital assets that separate you from the competition that if outsiders got a hold of, um, it could mean the end of your organization. So understand those, once you've understood those, kind of map those against uh, what we call a risk register to determine you know, where your risk uh, is and then understand your risk appetite. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, and I think Phil hit it too when he mentioned, you know, doing, doing code audits often, you know, having, having a good understanding of, you know, what your risk, what your exposure is. You know, for the, for the bad guys, you know, with the onslaught of everything being digitized today, I think you, you have to look at it from the perspective of that they're very, very adept at knowing how to leverage that information to their advantage. And I think you have to look at it from that perspective. If you're not doing code audits, someone like an IO Active, Black Duck, looking at your overall vulnerability, again, what's your exposure? Because you know, if you're into some type of M&A activity and the acquiring company finds out you had your whole database lost or put out there on the dark net, you know, it's obviously going to affect things badly. I hate so it they're in, Sorry. <laughs> things are very temperamental. But they are um, a set of new services that emerge in, I guess. Um, they, would, uh, they fall into the third-party risk management category. Uh, so there are these companies, uh, there's a company called BitSight, Security Scorecard, there's another company called Risk Recon. Uh, what they will do is they will come and scan sort of publicly available information of a company, and then they will do an assessment of how risky those publicly accessible information is. Not, not inside the company, but only publicly available interfaces and things like that. And they'll report back to whoever wanted them to do the assessment. Uh, now, what I have seen in the past is usually you know, large companies who want to get a service from them, they say, hey, you know, security scorecard, go scan that company because I'm looking to put my data in uh, their application or not. Let me know how risky it is. And based on the rating, I may decide to do business with them or not. But what I have been seeing of late is companies now are doing proactive self-assessment with those services before their clients come to assess them. So I think it's a good thing to do. They, these services are still quite expensive these days. So I'm, I'm hopeful that somebody will come out with a, a mid-market or you know, sort of more mass-market service for smaller companies to consume so that everybody can increase their posture somewhat. You know, one of the questions I think a lot of audience members have is that if they have started or they have companies that have operated for, via perpetual license models and on-prem, they had a very good understanding of what the risks were of PII and perhaps how things could be attacked and what the value of patching and things uh, are toward the overall structure of their risks. But today, most are wanting subscription revenue, which means they're going to be hosting in things like Amazon and Azure and in Google and others. Can you talk a little bit about things that they should consider? You know, this thing about is the cloud secure? Well, if you're operating now in a SaaS model, if you're operating as a platform, what are the issues that you have to consider now in recurring revenue in a SaaS model, especially if you're a platform? What are your new requirements, uh, especially if you're hosting others? I mean, just think about MindBody. They have all of these people who are on their platform. 
what are their responsibilities? You may want to talk about things like SOC 1, SOC 2, SAS 70. What are the new rules that... I'm going to ask one comment on this, and then let's have a few minutes of Q&A. Sounds good. Okay, well, let's, let's talk about certifications and whether the cloud is secure and what they can, what people can do in terms of their investments and their business models uh, if they're going to the cloud to make it better or more secure, less risk. Uh, you guys talk about I don't, I don't know <laughs> if that makes it any better, you know, but I, I think once, once you introduce the, the cloud, it's, it's another area of complexity. So ensuring that they are, they are up to compliance in terms of SAS 70, doing regular pen testing, vulnerability assessments, I mean, all the things that are required for security, you know, to work in, in, that, in that type of environment. Is the uh, cloud secure? I think no, 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 I it's not. It's just a different set of problems, so. Uh, okay. I disagree. You disagree that the cloud... I disagree. I think, I think it is not a black and white thing. I actually think cloud eventually going to be the saving grace for us because who wants to everybody keep software in their own infrastructure and secure it if your business is not secure? I, I think that's absurd. Somebody else should take the burden, and that person who takes the burden should be the large cloud service providers. And all you have to do is keep managing the, who can use your data, managing your identity, but you don't need to be in the business of managing infrastructure. And I'm a, I'm a firm, firm believer of that. Yeah, but uh, you know, it depends if you buy the platform as a service or software as a service, so clouds come in different, different forms, right? Um, you know, one of the major uh, 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 consulting companies had their client data in the cloud and they were breached because they didn't go through the standard security controls that you need to do if you're on-prem or in the cloud, right? But I think that company would have been breached if they were keeping everything on-premises anyway because they're not following the, the best practices. So that's going to happen if they keep everything on-premises as well. well excellent. Let's, let's go ahead and open up for questions. A couple of questions, yeah. So questions from the audience? Oh, there's one back there. Um, you can scream it out, and I'll repeat it. So let me repeat the question. Well, so let me repeat the question. There's a, well, GDPR makes this even worse, but so the question is for the proper running of a company and to optimize it, you need tons of data and you need historical data and you need just mountains of data. And the more you have, the better you can focus on what you have and make decisions. But here we're saying that due to risk, accumulating all of this data, is a risk in of itself, we're saying delete the data. Are there any methods you can think of besides deleting data that would give you that richness of the data but not expose you to these kind of PII rules or PII issues of loss? Yeah. I, well, I think it really depends on what vertical or segment you work in, number one, right? Because if it comes down to e-discovery or lawsuits or any of those areas where you're, you're required to keep data for certain amounts of time, I get that. 
The, the other part, though, you have to consider, though, is, okay, what, what are the risks? You know, as, as Dean was saying, is understanding what those risks are. If you're housing credit card numbers inside your database and it gets stolen, all right. You know what? It's, it's one of those things you're going to go, well, why are we keeping all these credit card data? Is it that valuable to our equation or our algorithm to come to some finite thing or item at the end? I don't know, but the problem is, is that when you're dealing with PR at the end of that going, okay, we just lost 50,000 credit card numbers and you have to explain it, that's, that's where I think you have to understand the, the risks of what data you are keeping on board. Well, do you want to talk about masking and anonymization so you still get access to the data for its value, but you can't get back to the person? Yeah, so there are a lot of mathematical ways you can transform the data, and there are algorithms will let you do one-way transformation, meaning that input of data output a different form, and you cannot work, work it backwards. Um, so if you use that kind of uh, masking uh, methods that you might be able to get a record that is completely different from the original record, but can still let you do BI and do a little bit of an analytics, depending on what you're doing, right? Um, and that can take quite a bit of risk away from you. So if you, and, and we're not saying don't save any data, we're saying save as little as possible. Thank you very much, everybody. Great, thank you. Thank you.